Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. Let's talk a little bit of cancer research, a little machine learning, some genomics, some immunotherapy. We've got two grantees here today who talked with each other about their recent publications, Dr. Elham Azizi and Dr. Charlie Good. So Dr. Elham Azizi is a former ACS postdoctoral fellow, and she started her own lab at Columbia University. So she joined the podcast to, to talk with Dr. Good about a recent publication on mapping the evolution of T-cell states during response and resistance to adoptive cellular therapy. Dr. Charlie Good, in turn, talked about her paper, an NK-like CAR T-cell transition and CAR T-cell dysfunction. So Dr. Good is an ACS postdoctoral fellow in the lab of Shelley Berger at the University of Pennsylvania. Really enjoyed this conversation. They they started out, the first few minutes are for a lay audience. And then they got a little bit more technical as they kind of explained key findings from their paper and then asked each other some questions about it. Um, we started out the interview by asking if they could explain their work for a general audience. So this first question was for Dr. Azizi. So uh, yeah, so so my lab uh, focuses on mainly using the combination of single cell genomics and imaging, so high dimensional genomic technologies with developing new machine learning methods to analyze these uh, complex data sets with a focus on understanding the, the complexity of the tumor microenvironment. So this is kind of building up on my postdoc work and actually the paper we're talking about was my last postdoc uh, project. So what we're doing now in the lab is uh, also looking at the dynamics of uh, different cell states in the tumor microenvironment, for example, how are cancer cells as well as immune cells evolving, uh, changing over time in response to treatments, uh, immunotherapy is relevant to both of the papers we're going to talk about, uh, but also how are they spatially organized, what is the role of the microenvironment in, uh, you know, uh, the intercellular interactions uh, that drive progression of cancer and responses to therapies. Uh, so very multidisciplinary work. Uh, uh, yeah. but, uh, that's kind of the high level goal. Yeah, no big deal. Just a little single cell genomics, a little machine learning. <laughs> Very complicated stuff. <laughs> Not as complicated Char as yours. <laughs> Charlie, what about you? Just uh, maybe starting with the kind of how can I explain this to Joe view of things? And yeah, then we'll get into, then we'll get deep. Yeah, so my, um, so I'm a, I get a bit more of a senior postdoc now, but um, I would say overall um, in my PhD work and postdoc work, I'm just really interested in trying to identify ways to improve cancer therapy, whether that be um, mostly using a lot of genomic approaches. So looking at a lot of big data sets, doing computational analyses to try to see like if certain patients have vulnerabilities to maybe small molecule inhibitors, um, but just in the past couple of years, I started collaborating with Carl June's group at Penn, um, and that's what this paper that we'll talk about today is on uh, that work. And it's really about CAR T cell therapy. Um, so that is basically just using the patient's own immune system to basically kill the tumor, but it's not really working well in, in um, for example, solid tumors. And so like the last couple of years have just been dedicated to trying to figure out why. Um, so any way that we can maybe improve therapies for patients is something that like I would be really interested in, um, you know, for the future, I would say for having my own lab. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is great. Um, 
So, Charlie, you published some work recently, just a little journal called Cell, just one of the leading scientific publications around. Um, I wonder if you could talk a bit about this, kind of tell, explain to Elham kind of the key takeaways of your work or what you're most excited about, about what this publication means. Yeah, so this uh, paper came out of a really fun collaboration between uh, my mentor's lab, Shelly Berger, and uh, Carl June, who's at Penn. And we really just uh, sought to try to understand why uh, CAR T cells aren't really working well as a therapy uh, in solid tumors. And for those who aren't quite familiar with CAR T cells, um, that's chimeric antigen receptor. CAR T cells are basically a form of immunotherapy that, um, you know, has really revolutionized cancer treatment. Um, so with leukemias and lymphomas, it's completely put them in remission. Um, it's working beautifully. Um, but for solid tumors, it's not working. And we think that's in part due to the uh, CAR T cells, be, you know, becoming dysfunctional once they enter the tumor microenvironment. And so this paper, um, we basically developed uh, a model, an in vitro model, to basically make CAR T cells dysfunctional so that then we can study them and try to understand what's driving their dysfunction um, with the idea if we can understand what's driving it, then we can maybe prevent it. So we basically take uh, healthy donor PBMCs and we generate CAR T cells from them. And then we just continuously expose them to tumor uh, for about 30 days, and that makes the CAR T cells just, you know, completely not work. Uh, they don't kill tumor anymore. They don't produce effector cytokines. And what we did is a lot of genomics. So basically, at various time points of this 30-day model, we did a, a single-cell RNA-seq and we did ATAC-seq. Um, and we basically identified these two transcription factors that uh, are turned on as the CAR T cells are becoming dysfunctional. Uh, they're, they're called ID3 and SOX4. And basically what we found is that these transcription factors are turning on this gene expression program uh, that includes not only uh, known exhaustion markers like inhibitory receptors, but also some natural killer cell uh, receptors, as well as uh, other genes that have not been linked to dysfunction before. But I think the most exciting part is that what we find is that when we knock out these two transcription factors in the CAR T cells, and then we put them back through the model, these knockout CAR T cells have improved anti-tumor function compared to the wild type counterparts. So basically, you know, they have an increased ability to kill tumor even after they've been, you know, put through the dysfunction model. Um, so we are, uh, most of this work was done in vitro in a Petri dish. Um, so what we're doing now uh, is following up in some mouse models. So if we can see the same thing happening in mice, I think this would give us um, you know, hope that this could potentially work in a clinical setting in the future. So that's kind of the the key takeaways from the paper and and what we sought to do and, and what we found. Yeah. So Dr. Azizi, as you kind of um, as you read over the paper and listened to her talk about it, are there any questions that really jumped to the top of mind for you? Yeah, so I first want to say I really enjoyed reading the paper, and so did my lab. We, we have been actually discussing about uh, some of the conclusions and how it relates to some of our ongoing projects in other types of immunotherapies like adoptive cell therapy. So I really love the paper. It's such, uh, an incredible amount of work, uh, so much uh, data on uh, 
multiple you know, uh, levels, data types of genomic data. And what I found really interesting was that you, you designed and developed this in vitro model uh, and showed, you know, uh, validated the model with uh, a pancreatic cancer cell line, and then showed uh, also you have really cool mouse model data, but you also showed the relevance of uh, this uh, the signature uh, design that you found from this model in uh, clinical trials in patient data in a completely different type of cancer. So that was really interesting for me. And uh, to me, it again kind of like shows how uh, the, the immune machinery, underlying immune machinery can be leveraged to develop more uh, generalized immunotherapies. Uh, but generally, uh, I was uh, wondering what your thoughts are about, uh, you know, the uh, other patients that, for example, didn't, where you didn't see this uh, increase in uh, uh, NK receptor expression. Uh, do you think it could be because of uh, interactions with other cell types? What are some of the hypotheses that you think uh, could explain uh, that observation? Yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting question. And, um, you know, I think that some of the things we've identified in this in vitro model, um, you know, we've seen uh, in, for example, some mouse models, uh, the signature kind of showing up. But um, I think the jury is still out on, you know, how much we'll see this in patient samples. Uh, so there's actually a, a clinical trial going on right now um, that my collaborator is doing at Penn, uh, Carl June. So they're actually um, using the same mesothelin specific car in patients with pancreatic cancer. Um, and we are doing some single cell RNA-seq in those patients. Um, and, um, you know, at baseline, so the CAR T cells before they're infused and then after. And I think that will be a really nice place to see, you know, looking at the same CAR. So in the paper, we show um, a CD19 CAR, uh, which, so it's a different CAR and it's in uh, patients with diffuse large B cell lymphoma. So I think, um, you know, the fact that we see a few patients that express this NK signature is exciting, um, <laughs> but we, yeah, but we were missing, you know, we we don't know if they expressed the transcription factors and the fact that it was kind of only a few patients, it, it kind of validates the signature, but um, I think there's really a lot more to be done in terms of the clinical relevancy of, um, you know, what we've identified in this in vitro model. Yes, that makes sense. And related to the, um, uh, for example, chromatin accessibility, I'm wondering, did you look at any um, I don't know, ChIP-seq or ATAC-seq, uh, any chromatin data from the patient samples? We have not, no. Um, but that would also be uh, really exciting. And I think that for the future of the project, we're really interested in diving a bit deeper. So in our paper, and I think similar to you guys, you did bulk ATAC-seq. Um, mm -hmm. For both of us, so it's interesting because we both did single cell RNA-seq and bulk ATAC-seq, but I think for the upcoming experiments, we really want to do single cell ATAC and try to really get at like some of these different subsets and subtypes and kind of the chromatin uh, changes. And also like we also see some epigenetic regulators that are changing throughout the model. So kind of going in and seeing, um, you know, if some epigenetic enzymes might could be actually used in the model to prevent the dysfunction as well. Um, it looks like some of these transcription factors are also regulating epigenetic enzymes. So I think, although we didn't have a big focus in the paper on um, some of the chromatin changes and, and epigenetic changes, it's definitely a big future direction. Uh, and it would be very cool to see in, in patients too. Definitely, very exciting. So I wonder if we could switch gears for for a moment. So Dr. Azizi, we've you were 
an ACS postdoc for for a, a hot minute back in the day, and then you got an NIH grant. Now you're at Columbia University, faculty job, and it's been really fun to follow your career over the years. It's been like one really interesting finding after another, and the most recent, I think it's the most recent, you had a paper recently on mapping the evolution of T-cell states during response and resistance to adoptive cellular therapy. So uh, we gave Dr. Good a chance to read over this and thought maybe you could talk for a minute about your findings and then turn it over to Dr. Good to ask you some questions. Sure. Uh, so this recent paper, uh, which was one of my uh, last postdoc projects, uh, kind of went goes back to the some of the problems that uh, uh, Dr. Good already mentioned, which is about you know the variability of uh, efficiency of immunotherapies and. Uh, it has been really variable across you know, cancer types, but also in the same cancer type across patients, uh, there's a, you know, a, a big room for improvement uh, of the efficacy. And so uh, part of this is because of the heterogeneity in the tumor microenvironment and all these, these different cell states, uh, some of which uh, uh, Dr. Good just mentioned, uh, such as exhausted T cell states and how they're interacting with the tumor microenvironment and how they can be different uh, in, in, across patients. So to really understand, you know, what is the heterogeneity and what are, with a very unbiased approach, what are uh, the different cell states that might be associated with response to immunotherapies, what we did in this paper was look at a very instructive uh, clinical setting, which is uh, donor lymphocyte infusion. It is a type of adoptive cell therapy, so also immunotherapy, but uh, it's uh, an established type of immunotherapy for leukemia patients that relapse post uh, allogenic stem cell transplant. Uh, and uh, even though uh, today it's um, kind of uh, more of a standard of care uh, treatment for other types of leukemia like AML. Uh, in Historically, it has been really successful in the context of CML, which is uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia. And uh, the advantage of looking at, you know, uh, an established uh, form of therapy like uh, CML and uh, uh, such as a DLI for CML is that we have access to uh, long-term uh, patient samples over decades and years. Uh, and uh, so this study worked on, you know, uh, creating an unbiased map of all the different cell states in the bone marrow microenvironment uh, of these patients before and after they received this adoptive cell therapy. And the idea was to, you know, identify are there particular T cell states, uh, especially that uh, are enriched before therapy and therefore could predict, use, be used as predictive biomarkers of, of whether this patient would respond to this immunotherapy or not, and therefore prevent, you know, unpleasant uh, toxicities uh, for patients, uh, but also to understand what is the mechanism, underlying mechanisms of uh, these types of uh, immunotherapies so we can improvement for, improve them for other types of cancers, other, other patients as well. Uh, so uh, that means uh, we wanted to look for, you know, are there uh, other T cell states that expand and uh, are uh, increasing proportion after uh, they get the therapy. So looking at longitudinal single cell data, uh, but also developing a comprehensive suite of computational methods that allows us to uh, look at 
first of all, dissect all these different heterogeneous uh, cell states in the bone marrow microenvironment, but also integrate the data over time points, integrate different types of data, such as single cell RNA-seq with attack-seq data to learn about the underlying circuitry of the cells. That was a major focus of uh, my contribution uh, to the paper. And uh, the findings were, you know, we found uh, these interesting, um, also exhausted T cells, uh, but terminally differentiated exhausted T cells that were enriched only in responder, responders to DLI prior to the treatment, and also uh, other types of exhausted T cells that have, all, uh, in addition to hallmarks of exhaustion, they also have self-renewal properties and are more progenitor-like uh, or early differentiated uh, T cells uh, that uh, significantly expand in proportion after uh, immunotherapy. Uh, so uh, this, the way we've identified and tracked their dynamics was developing computational methods that modeled their temporal dynamics and also integrated uh, ataxic data to learn about where the underlying transcription factors that uh, are important uh, drivers for these uh, subsets. And uh, actually SOX4 was uh, also one of the uh, transcription factors that we found with a completely unbiased uh, approach from our computational predictions. So it's really interesting to see, you know, uh, potentially similar regulatory mechanisms uh, in uh, like different types of, again, immunotherapies, also different types of cancer, uh, again, showing the implications uh, of uh, the uh, general immune machinery that can be leveraged. Um, and lastly, we also looked at looked to see, you know, these expanding uh, progenitor exhausted T cells, are they coming from the immunotherapy, the infusion uh, treatment itself, or are they an expansion of pre-existing clones? And for that, we use single cell T cell receptor uh, data paired with RNA. And uh, surprisingly, we found that uh, they're not originating from uh, the infusion, but rather the treatment is invigorating uh, the recruitment and expansion of these pre-existing uh, progenitor exhausted T-cells. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the major <laughs> highlights. Yeah, it was it was very cool to see all of the different um, subpopulations that you were, like the metaclusters you were able to identify that were, you know, expanding or, uh, you know, disappearing in the, the non-responders. Um, was it at all surprising to you guys when you first realized that, um, you know, the exhausted population really um, was kind of specific to the responders uh, pre-infusion? Or was that something you guys were uh, ex anticipating? So that's a great question. So uh, some of the work done uh, by actually our collaborators, Kathy Wu's uh, lab, uh, Dana Farber Cancer uh, Cancer Institute. Uh, uh, they have shown they had shown that using bulk RNA sequencing data, that there are uh, you know characteristics of exhausted T cells and kind of a reversion of uh, T cell exhaustion happening uh, during response to DLI. But the question was, are there you know particular subsets of T cells, particular cell states uh, that uh, mediate this reverse uh, reversing of T cell exhaustion, uh, or are there other T cell states also you know contributing to uh, the response or resistance mechanism? Uh, so that's kind of uh, what this paper did to kind of uh, distinguish these two important uh, exhausted T cells, some with uh, early and some with late differentiation states uh, that. Uh, appear at different stages uh, of, of the uh, treatment uh, as well. Um, and in terms of resistance, what was also interesting uh, to see is that uh, each of the 
non-responder patients forms their own uh, kind of dysfunctional and resistant T-cell state. And it kind of, uh, we have this uh, Anna Karenina uh, quote uh, from Leo Tolstoy in the paper uh, yes. that says, all happy families are alike, but all unhappy families are unhappy in their own way. And it kind of like was a uh, some nice summary of uh, what we see in our data that there are clear, uh, you know, uh, common response mechanisms that we found in all of our responder patients, but all of the non-responding patients had uh, their own dysfunctional cluster of T cells. And we showed with factor analysis methods that uh, they are, are correlated with different uh, forms of uh, dysfunctional mechanisms. Do you think that, um, you know, since the non-responders kind of, like you said, had their own um, dysfunction, uh, you know, phenotype, um, do you think that means it would be pretty difficult to kind of turn them into responders or like kind of to shift them to be able to recruit these, you know, expansion of this progenitor population? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I mean, definitely some of the implications of, of uh, this work can be thinking of designing uh, for example, CAR-T therapies that strategies, therapeutic strategies in general that increase or recruit these progenitor-like uh, exhausted T cells. Um, and that could be through, you know, targeted methods like actually manipulating the transcription factors like uh, you're uh, doing in your study or, you know, using uh, other artificial uh, synthetic designs uh, such as CAR-T. But uh, yeah, so what we found was these progenitor exhausted T cells were present at very low proportions in the responder patients. So they have this uh, likely they uh, to have this potential for response, and uh, maybe that can be something that can be used to improve and redesign uh, DLI or adoptive cell therapies for patients. That is very cool. And I, I think also just the machine learning, uh, the symphony uh, algorithm that you guys uh, created to kind of take, um, you know, these different data sets and data types, and, you know, come out with uh, transcription factors and, you know, using the motif from the ATAC data, like it's a beautiful um, work and it's no doubt what we need, I feel like in the field right now, um, you know, we, every, every, it seems like a lot of people are interested in doing genomics and there's so much data out there, even data that's freely, you know, publicly available. Um, but there are less people, uh, you know, coming up with the creative um, ways to analyze the data. Um, so it's like such important work what you're doing and um, that no doubt the future. And I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts about, you know, where machine learning is going to go, um, you know, what you're kind of thinking of next and, and how to use your skill sets to kind of push forward, you know, cancer therapy. I really appreciate you saying that. And uh, I think that's definitely true that, you know, with how the genomic field, the genomic technologies are evolving and really expanding, we are uh, collecting, have the opportunity to basically collect a lot of high dimensional, large scale data uh, from not just patients, but also uh, cancer models. And uh, we do need uh, new types of methods, not just, you know, off the shelf, uh, even machine learning methods, because they have been designed for completely different uh, reasons for, uh, you know, the goals of predictability, for example, labeling if this is a picture of a cat or a dog, uh, but that's not, you know, a predictive power is not the main goal in uh, cancer biology or uh, cancer treatment. Uh, here we 
things like, for example, our confidence uh, measurement, uh, how reliable is this prediction or the interpretability of the models, what are the underlying uh, variables and parameters that, have, that are driving this prediction are much more important than, uh, you know, the predictive power. So uh, I do think, you know, with uh, new genomic methods, new genomic technologies, we have to rethink the design of machine learning tools, but also the, there are other, you know, the, the problem definitions are also different. For example, in, again, computer vision, uh, we have a lot more data, uh, whereas in biology, especially in disease, we don't have a lot of, at least in terms of the scale and how it spans all these types of rare uh, treatment, rare uh, diseases, uh, we don't have uh, a lot of, uh, you know, big data for training models that are completely unsupervised and unbiased. And, you know, the disease case of disease is really an outlier, whereas in, again, uh, machine learning, the goal is to uh, kind of uh, understand the average uh, and not specifically those outlier cases that in our world uh, lead to uh, development of disease and cancer. Uh, so it's important to think how we can develop methods that uh, not only don't require a lot of training data uh, from these uh, rare cases, but also incorporate what we know about the biology. So a lot of uh, methods that you know we're thinking about in the lab uh, are more shifting to semi-supervised machine learning methods that not only have a generative structure that uh, tells the model that these are how these parameters are dependent on each other, but also use information, for example, uh, just this paper, we're now expanding it to look at interactions between all immune and leukemia cell types, not just T cells. And in that context, we also want to learn about uh, what are the interactions, and there's all this information and databases about receptors and ligands that uh, drive these in, and mediate these interactions. So thinking about developing methods uh, that incorporate prior knowledge in uh, biology in uh, driving the predictions and incorporating them, updating them as we collect data, I think uh, is uh, where the machine learning uh, field in specifically in computational biology uh, might be moving forward to. It's really exciting. Great question. Great answer. I'm disappointed you didn't have another Tolstoy quote ready for that one. I know. <laughs> anyway, so I wanted to ask you, one of the things I think our donors would really love to know, you know, after hearing you talk about this research, is there, could you talk a bit about whether ACS funding has had an impact on your science or on your career? But Dr. Good, I wonder, I wonder if we could start with you. Yeah, it has, um, I would say, impacted both the science and the career aspect. So one is getting to meet um, through the ACS. I have I've had the chance to meet several other uh, ACS grantees uh, and make friendships with people, um, you know, not only today, but through uh, various other ways and also the ACS staff. So I was part of what they called the pay if council. Um, so my grant wasn't initially funded, but then they called me, you know, I think, you know, several months later and said, well, hey, we just found, um, you know, extra money to give you. And um, so it's that being part of that pay if council has been great because every year I um, I get to meet with the donors, um, you know, I get to update them and and it's just been very illuminating uh, and getting to know personally some of the, the donors has been really a highlight of my postdoc work and hearing what makes them be part of the ACS community 
And it, of course, impacts the science because it's giving us the money, you know, to do some of this important research. Um, so I feel extremely grateful to be, you know, part of the ACS community and, you know, not only for the, the generous money for the research, but also just to be part of the community of, of researchers and staff that are dedicated to, you know, finding a cure. This is so nice to hear. Um really feel like you're part of the ACS family and I, I feel like our family is so much uh, richer because of you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Azizi, could, could I ask you the same question about kind of if ACS funding has had an, an impact on your science or your career? Of course, yes, definitely. The impact has been significant. I mean, the postdoc fellowship uh, funded by ACS was the first major funding that I received for my postdoc work. It, uh, I first of all appreciated that, you know, a very interdisciplinary project, which uh, is oftentimes really hard to get funding from, was, uh, you know, supported by ACS. And that really helped me build the groundwork for, at that time, we were building the first machine learning methods for analyzing single cell data. And it really helped me build a foundation for my postdoc work. And building on that, that led to, you know, getting preliminary data that uh, I used for the NIH funding. And, you know, uh, the, uh, the transition to my uh, faculty position was significantly impacted by that uh, generous support. But uh, beyond the funding, it, it was also the community. Uh, it's actually very interesting. Uh, one of the kind of uh, most exciting conferences I went to was the ACS Agilers Conference that uh, I was randomly uh, actually paired with uh, another postdoc at the time uh, as a roommate in that conference. And we be became really good friends. And uh, years later, we're both faculty uh, in at Columbia University right now. So. Wow. <laughs> so it was really amazing because I uh, remember vividly we were like uh, sitting in the room room and like talking to each other we were both thinking of applying for faculty positions at the time and sharing advice with each other and uh, it has been really amazing to you know be part of this community that uh, I've gotten advice from so many senior faculty but also built uh, relationships and collaborations with uh, the junior uh, researchers including postdocs that uh, then came to also become uh, faculty members so uh, it has been amazing and I definitely feel honored to be part of this community. That is pretty cool. You were at Sloan Kettering at the time when you were a postdoc, right? Yes. And then can we can we ask the name of the other postdoc who you met? Sure. At the... It was Dr. Allison Taylor. She was oh, a postdoc at MIT and now she is also at Columbia. <laughs> Shout out to Dr. Taylor. That's a pretty cool story. And I guess if it's okay, I'd love to give the last kind of last word to cancer patients, cancer survivors, and their families. If you think about somebody going through the cancer experience and you wanted to kind of explain to them why it's a really exciting time in cancer research, what would you say to them? I think I'm, I might be biased, but I think this is just the absolute best time uh, to be doing cancer research because I think that with all of the um, the technologies that have come about in the last decade, uh, from sequencing the genome and now learning, um, you know, it's allowed us to learn more about vulnerabilities in, in patients. So not any, you know, even if you have breast cancer, it's not all the same. And they're all, you know, many different types of, you know, breast cancer patients need, you know, separate different types of treatments. 
Um, and using all of this, these big data, we can really say, you know, this group of patients need to be treated with this inhibitor or these this other group, you know, will won't respond to that inhibitor, but might respond to this one. So I feel like we are gonna make big strides in the next decade, um, off the back of all of the technology that has come about, um, you know, in the past 10, 15 years. And so I think that we are really closer, inching closer every day to, um, you know, really making cancer, um, you know, a, a treatable disease. It's something you just kind of live with and you know, it's not a, a, a death sentence anymore. It's something that, um, you know, you just have to take a medication for and you'll have a very long life. And that's what we're all striving for. Yes, I definitely second that. And, uh, you know, it's the tremendous uh, imp uh, improvement and explosion of these uh, genomic technologies has been uh, really the driver, like decades ago, we didn't know what are the mutations that different tumors uh, might have. Now we not only know that the answer to that, we know we can find out uh, what are the diverse types of mutations. Are there multiple tumor clones, cancer clones? Uh, which ones uh, might be, you know, responding to a treatment? Uh, which ones uh, may not be, might be, you know, leading to relapse? So these are all kind of questions that we can answer with these new types of technologies. And and also not just the mutations now we we both of these papers have been looking at you know what is the function of these uh, cell different diverse cell types uh, and uh, what are they actually doing uh, in terms of uh, the progression of the disease so there's a lot of information that we can gain but also I'm uh, of course again I'm biased but I'm definitely excited about the development of all the new computational methods that allow us to make sense of all this big data as well and I think it's uh, definitely the time that these different, very uh, traditionally different uh, fields are coming together to uh, answer important questions and, you know, tackle the complexity of cancer. So I'm, I'm uh, definitely hopeful. I am hopeful too. I'm just grateful. I, I, I just feel a lot better knowing that the two of you are out working on this. Thanks for all you do and take care. Thank you for this amazing opportunity. Yes, thanks for having us.